Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to be with you all this, this evening. This devotional will be, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 7. So if you want to open up to that, to follow along, I invite you to do so. But before we begin, let's go to the Lord and pray one more time. Father in heaven, we are very fortunate to have your word in our, in our language. And today we have looked to it uh, many times. We've had it taught to us faithfully. And we've beheld Christ and the truth of his personhood and his work for our benefit. And we thank you for that. And so as we end this day together, we look to your word one more time. We pray that you would open it up to us, our understanding. Strengthen us by it, we pray. Amen. Well, our verse this evening will be verse 24 in Matthew chapter 7. I'll read verse 24 and a few verses after so that we have the entire thought block in our minds as we start. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Before this, before us this evening are the words of Jesus Christ as he closes out what we call the Sermon on the Mount. In the book of Matthew, this is the uninterrupted, protracted discourse that takes place over three chapters. It includes many of the well-known snippets of comfort and instruction, such as the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, and the golden rule, do to others as you would have them do to you. There are also those sharp teachings of dealing with sin, such as gouging out one's eyes or cutting off one's arm or leg should they lead us astray. It even contains that heathen favorite, judge not, though we all know there is a lot more to that instruction than those first two words indicate. We hear in these closing words, Jesus informs his hearers that to truly benefit from these words of his, there need to be an accompanying action, and that to do so was to act in a manner that corresponds with wisdom. So for us this evening, we are going to examine three important aspects of Jesus' instruction that help underscore that we are doing what he tells us to do. Three aspects that will help lead us in spiritual wisdom so that we may find salvation and spiritual maturity. So firstly, the importance of hearing the word. Well, mankind has gained much knowledge of this world. We have generations of accumulated knowledge of a great diversity of subjects, from the smallest components of the natural world through to measurements of heavenly bodies of astronomical size. Knowledge is something we have an abundance of. But is this knowledge of us, is this knowledge of any lasting good to us? Does it really afford anything in the way of wisdom, especially with regard to spiritual good? 
The Apostle Paul tells us in the Epistle to the Romans that natural revelation does indeed tell us something of the spiritual realm and of God, namely that God exists due to the brute fact of the existence of creation. It testifies to his divine nature and his eternal power because all of creation needed something outside of creation to create it. But is such knowledge of God sufficient for salvation? Even if it points us in the right direction, is it sufficient to lead the way? Well, let us consider what our verse says. It says, everyone then who hears these words goes on potentially to be like the wise man who avoids travesty. Well, do not miss this very important start to the verse. Now we do read in the subsequent verse that the foolish man also hears these, hears these words yet ends up perishing. But the point is that for any chance of success, we must receive these words in our ears. And why is it so? What is it about these words that can provide aid that all the knowledge of the world seems unfit to provide? Well, simply it is because these words of Jesus are far superior to that of natural revelation. One reason for that is our sin. The sin of our heart darkens any light natural revelation provides. We take what it gives and suppress it and shove it down into the dark recesses of our dark minds and become futile in our thinking and claiming to be wise, we demonstrate ourselves to be fools, as Romans 1 verse 22 puts it. Contrast this to whom these words of our text belong. They are from Jesus Christ himself, the light of men, in whom there is no sin. It is said of Christ in the Gospel of John that in him was life, and that life is the light of men, and that light shines into the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. And so we see the importance of not only hearing anything remotely wise, but rather hearing special revelation, the very words of God about himself, speaking truth about the nature of man and of their disastrous position before a holy God. So, unbeliever, if you're hearing me right now, I exhort you to attune your ear to God and to his son, Jesus, whom he has anointed as your king and judge, and hear the terms of peace that can currently exist between you and him. Your self-justifying man-made standards, standards of knowledge are of no strength to withstand the coming deluge of wrath appointed for all unrepentant sinners. The clouds are gathering and the tempest is forming. So look towards and listen to the appointed Savior and his words. And to the servants of Christ who has already had the, his heart set towards the voice of Jesus, let us be reminded of the importance of hearing. Ask yourself where you would be had you not received the words of Jesus so as to turn from your sin and set your hope upon him. Let us strive to ensure that this ministry of the word continues in this church, and both within its fold and outwards to the various communities we found ourselves in. Apply yourself to the hearing of the weekly preaching so that you are built up by it, so that you can be strengthened for the combat of your own sins and for the instruction of others that the Lord gives you opportunity to speak to. May it be said of this congregation that we faithfully voice the sweet sounds of the message of peace. For as the scriptures say, faith comes from hearing. Second aspect is the importance of faith in the word. 
Having considered the importance of hearing the word, it must be said that hearing in and of itself is insufficient to make, a, to make one wise for salvation, nor is it capable of helping us grow in holiness. In the subsequent verses of the passage, Jesus was careful, careful to plainly state that there are those who hear his words but go on to lose everything in the flood waters. And why was it so? Because though they heard the word, they did not follow them as directed. As our verse puts it in the positive light, whoever hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man. Now, if you're wondering why the section title of this meditation is the importance of faith in the words and not in doing the words, it's not because I want to remove the burden of action, but rather that I want to underscore what is required when we undertake that action. Have any of you read the Sermon on the Mount recently and walked away thinking to yourself, yeah, I got all that covered. I must be like the wise man now. What's next, God? No, not many can fit the positive mold of the character types visited by Jesus' sermon. Who of us doesn't squirm at the probing words which prick at the self-justifying tendencies of our hearts? Jesus is effortless to expose our feeble standards of self-righteousness. He merely picks up the sword of the word of God and lightly jabs us in the ribs so as to alert us to its sharpness, as if to warn us of the ease with which it would split us in two. You think you don't break the seventh commandment not to commit adultery? What about when you look lustfully at a woman or an image of a woman with your eyes? Ah, now you see that your eyes were merely reflecting the orientation of your heart, exposing the corruption of your so-called fidelity. Or who of you have not despaired at some of the instructions given from our Lord in those chapters? To love your enemies, to pray for those who have gone so far as to persecute you, to restrain yourself from retaliation, and to rather allow yourself to be defrauded. Who has the strength to do such things from their own power? Who of you haven't withered inside when considering the length to which you excuse your own sin and pander to it, instead of treating it with a picture of seriousness that Jesus paints with his vivid descriptions of gouging out one's sinful eyes or cutting off one's sinful arm or hand? Do we comprehend the fires of hell sufficiently to take him seriously? We don't if we don't see the weight of our offense and see to what depths that would drag us. So was Jesus then just reissuing the Old Testament law to confirm its standard for righteousness? Well, in some sense, yes. He was helping them to see the actual requirements of the good law, which some of his hearers had managed to shape into manageable chunks that they felt, made, that felt, they felt made them acceptable. But Jesus didn't come just to amplify the law, nor to abolish the law, but rather to fulfill it. And he does so precisely because we cannot. His aim to expose the meaning of the law was to bring his hearers and doers to an end of themselves. For when we stop thinking that we can establish a right standing of ourselves before the Lord, but instead see the degree and breadth of our sinful state, so that it all might now, all that we might do now is fear the Lord, then we have come to the beginning of wisdom. When all our options have been shut to us, then looking to the Lord is the only rational way forward. We are to do these words, but we see that we cannot do them in our own power, nor do we do them superficially, and certainly not hypocritically, as if only to convince those around us 
as being sufficient to the task. Instead, we must do them with reliance and dependence on God. Specifically, we must take him at his word to do what his word says, even if we see no strength in ourselves to do it. We trust him that he will empower us in our weakness. We trust him that he looks favorably on our quiet acts of piety. And we trust him that he is merciful without contrition. And we trust him that he is indeed gracious in our shortcomings. Lastly, the last aspect is the importance of knowing the times. As we return to our text, we see that it says that the one who hears these words of Christ and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. What is it about this man that caused him to build his house on the rock? I would propose that the wise man was a man of his time. That is, he is perceptive to the common ways in which the world works and anticipates the ramifications. He possibly considered that even though the nearby waterways were far from his prospective dwelling place, he nonetheless could see that given the right natural conditions, that those floodwaters would rise and destabilize the ground. He could see that the prevailing winds were always gentle to moderate, but given a dramatic change in pressure, the surrounding land would funnel those winds into a forceful gale capable of toppling an unstable structure. And so given these considerations, albeit they seem maybe uncommon to occur, they could conceivably come to pass with sufficient time. Therefore, there is prudence to make the effort now while the weather is fair and favorable to dig deeper and build upon a firm foundation. Here is a word of caution to the reckless sinner and the uncaring saint. Do we know the times that we are living in? Are you, sinner, aware of the coming storm? Do you not see the principle of justice in the world around you? Do you not appeal to others to respect your life and property? And when you are wrong, do you not long for the wrong to be made right? And what of your wrongdoings? Are they not liable to punishment? Surely they are. And what now of your wickedness that you know lurks inside you? Is there not to be divine justice meted out against that? Do you not see that the coming storm is the very wrath of God roiling against you and all the wicked? So do not presume to hide from it. And do not think that your little shanty structure can offer you any shelter from the rising waters and the howling gale. Your self-excusing, self-righteousness wouldn't even stand up in a human argument. So how much more so do you think you can stand before a holy and righteous God? Stop with the foolishness. Look around and take heed of the times. Listen to your crazy Christian friends who you think take their faith too seriously. Take their advice and listen to the words of God from Scripture. Read of his work in history to enact his plan of salvation. With the first coming of Christ, many final pieces of that redemptive plan had been put in place. And Jesus came of his own volition from the glories of heaven and lived among sinful men so as to live under and to live out the law with its principle of works, so that he might attain life for all that would be united to him by faith. He was also subjected to the penalty of transgression by bearing the sins of all who would repent and believe in him and in his mission, carrying those sins up a hill called Calvary, suffering the agony of the wrath of God, and then taking them down into the grave. But he was raised from the dead, so as to be proved right, that he was who he said he was all along, the Son of God, chosen by his Father to be both Savior 
and king. And so with that momentous milestone in human history having taken place, today is the day of salvation. Now is the favorable time when the fountain of life is open for all who are thirsty to come and drink the free draft of grace. Now is the time when the poor can come and buy eternal life at no cost. Now is the time to hear the gospel of grace proclaimed so as to turn from your sins exposed by the true requirements of the law. Now is the time to turn in faith before the coming storm of judgment, trusting the merits of Christ alone as all sufficient to cleanse you of your guilt. And to you, Christian, are we exempt from this exaltation because we believe? Would we not be wise to see where we stand in the course of history? The time is running thin, and the enemies of God are seeking to stamp us out of sight. They do not want to hear of coming judgment. Like Noah, they think we are mad. They will spit and mock and revile because we are interrupting their enjoyment and revelry. Are we ready for such accusations? Have we yet attained such a high spiritual maturity that we would always abide by our master's words to endure such things? Have we truly found Christ to be our treasure, just such that our grip on worldly things is so loose that it doesn't bother us to lose them? Is the fruit of the Spirit budding, growing, and blossoming so that it is evident that we are attached to the vine, Jesus Christ? Come, let us resolve to press on towards that heavenly goal let us look to the horizon for the return of Christ and at the same time to go about his business as those who believe he is returning soon. And let us continue to pray and labor for the strengthening of his local church that we might be a rock of refuge that points all weary sinners to Christ, the true rock and our salvation. May God grant us grace to do all these things. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do sincerely ask that you grant us your grace and your power to abide in your word. We pray that you would help us to love the things it commands of us, renew our hearts so that we love your commands more and more, and so to do them out of gratitude for all you have done for us in Christ. Grant that we may, we may be wise, keep our conduct pure, make our testimony one that shows that we revere your name and desire to keep it holy. Strengthen us for the week ahead, for the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.